enterprises are very different from SMBs because they are way more about politics and appearances that they're about quality and reality. So I very quickly learned the fact that if you make the buyer look good in eyes of his bosses or her bosses, then you will win and nothing else matters. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Product Market Fit, a show all about startups and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and today I'll be interviewing Rasti Turek, founder and CEO of PEX. So I was recently introduced to Rasti by Sean Burns. Big thanks to Sean. And if you haven't listened to my interview with him on episode 11, you should definitely check it out. When I got on my first call with Rasti, it immediately felt like I was talking to an old friend. His intelligence and authenticity are palpable and his personal background story is wild. After our call, when I got to researching him and his company, I was all the more amazed. PEX is a global leader in digital rights technology, meaning they facilitate the protection and usage of copyrighted content across the web and across the massive amount of UGC or user-generated content that's created every day. They actually have a three-sided marketplace, but I'll let Rasti explain that in more detail. I'm fascinated by these types of plumbing businesses you don't think much of them as a consumer, but they are all around us powering our everyday activities. The company raised about $64 million in venture funding and has a little over 100 employees, mostly engineers. So we're in it for an exciting conversation. But first, a couple of housekeeping items. My goal with this podcast is to share practical knowledge with startup founders and growth practitioners. If you enjoy this episode, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you love to listen. And please share it on social media so others like you can find us. The Product Market Fit podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce companies build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to Growth.co. That's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now on with the show. Welcome, Rasti. I am really excited for our conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So Rasti, today I'm hoping to pick your brain on how you built PEX to what it is today, deal making and partnerships with massive corporations, the regulatory landscape for digital assets, and your thoughts on culture and leadership. How does that sound? Sounds good. Awesome. So to get us started, can you tell us what is PEX and who do you serve? PEX is a lot of things, but ultimately PEX focuses on one mission. That mission is bringing attribution to the internet. It doesn't seem like a much, but attribution is a very vital part of human interactions. When you look at functional marketplace and physical marketplace, we always have three things going at the same time, right? One is identity. That means I see who you are. We have a payments. We have a way of exchanging, be it barter or currency. And then we have an attribution, right? Like if you stand by wheelbarrow of wheat and nobody's yelling at you to return it, then it's most likely yours, right? Attribution doesn't seem super exciting, but it's a very integral part of humanity, right? Like we care more about credit than we care about money. And so when you look at the internet, in 90s when we started, we had none of these three parts. There was no identity, no payments, and there was no attribution. The first thing that was sold was payments, right? The Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and all of these companies showed up and they solved it, right? Then Facebook showed up, and before Facebook, essentially everybody went by a nickname, pseudonym, or something similar. And the last thing that is left is attribution, right? When you publish something online, three seconds later, someone takes it, strips it out of everything that they don't like, and make it their own. And so UGC, or user-generated content, which is represented by the ones of TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, and others, the same goes to anything from images, podcasts, photos, or anything else, right? When you create this podcast, is someone chops off five seconds of it and uses it for their own. It's not like you know about it or you can do anything about it. However, not only is this integral part of humanity, that means you should be recognized for the contribution. In addition to that, it's also required by law. Copyright law in the United States is very old. The Berne Conventions happened way over 150 years ago. And so we are talking about hundreds of years of somewhat enforcement around copyright. And so all of these things 
are coming together, but on the internet, it's still not really, I will not say necessarily enforced, but rather recognized in a way, right? One thing that we learn from any functional marketplace, more you recognize contribution, more people contribute, right? People want to be recognized still, right? There is a reason why we call people father of, father of AI, father of this, father of that. There is a reason why we go after people like Daft Punk and say they, they created this genre. It's not that they are the only ones in it, but it's important to recognize the fact that they started it, right? And so that's what PEX is trying to do, bringing the recognition of someone's um, contribution to the masses and doing it in the most seamless way possible. So our, our approach is essentially you don't know that this exists and it benefits you from the background, as you said, the plumbing business, right? And so that's kind of the large vision for PEX. The immediate business and technology behind it is essentially we used what is called ACR, Automatic Content Recognition. Most people can recognize this from the ones of Shazam. Song is playing somewhere in a bar, you record a few seconds, it tells you, oh, this is the song. What it uses is essentially this ACR kind of technology through what is called fingerprinting, essentially taking a digital snapshot of the wave that is coming in. So for audio, it's one wave, for video, it's multiple. It creates its fingerprint, and then it's able to search a database. This is very similar to, for instance, Google Image Search, right, where you can search by image. So it uses similar logic. We obviously build this in-house, but that, that logic is very, very similar. And so we apply this to audio, video, and images. We allow, essentially, to settle licensing at a point of publishing it. The idea behind that is it's not necessarily we want people to ask for money. We just want people to be recognized. Right? So when you look at the Creative Commons, this is that true core of that idea, right? Meaning you should be recognized for your production, even if it's free, right? That's what Creative Commons generally is calling for. Obviously, you can choose one that asks for nothing. But that's kind of generally why people use it, right? It's the fact that this is free and you can do whatever you want with it. Just make sure that you credit me, right? And that's where we are sitting and what we are trying to achieve. And so we focus mostly on UGC or part of the internet, which is the user-generated content, with the idea that we believe that people will produce more of it rather than less of it when there's a credit introduced to the process, right? The process doesn't extend in any way by essentially our contribution, meaning when a user is exposed to us, there is no more steps that they have to do. It's all done seamlessly in the background. Obviously, if the creator uses copyright of someone who actually requires something else, meaning they want money or something else, then yes, that, that creates some friction. But generally, it's fairly frictionless and it's very automatic. But you guys have to make money. So who is your customer today who's paying you for the service? We sell this to the platforms. We cover mostly their liability that comes from the legal requirements that they have to recognize the licenses of the rights holders. And uh, platforms, via, you mean YouTube, TikTok, those guys? I don't want to say those platforms <laughs> because they are not the customers, but those like. Okay. Exactly. And so platforms that essentially generally empower UGC we expose that to them, and then they pay us for the services. The product itself is a legal liability protection, meaning we cover them for any lawsuits or any damages that they could arise from, from UGC content and from utilization of the user-generated content. But we underneath, we empower essentially the attribution. So when somebody tries to upload a video, your system is running in the background, checking if there's any infringement or any copyright in multimedia within that and either serving up an alert or something to the user to the platform. Yeah. So the way it works is essentially a user starts uploading video, audio, whatever that is, images. We run the system or we create this fingerprint through our algorithm and then search a database. Again, very, very similar to something like Shazam or Google Image Search. We come up with the notification. So we say, this is all that is matching. Then we look at the people that essentially own the things that matched what they want. We call these business rules. And so they say, if this, then that, right? Like if my content is found in this context on this platform, this is what I want. We look what they want, we package that into what we call a license, and then we issue that back, right? So the user essentially within five seconds learns, okay, you used Song of Taylor Swift. However, her representatives say that on this platform, Taylor Swift song cannot be used. So we are sorry, but you cannot publish this because that's what they say, right? We cannot make anyone 
to change their mind, we can only facilitate what they are asking for, right? We can do this prior publishing, so they can do it completely separately and find out what is available and what is not, but that's kind of the logic behind it. Got it. And on the other side of the equation, the record labels, movie studios, those are your customers as well? Yes. They use the system to set up the rules. They still have to be paid in form of advertisement split. So the platform now knows that they need to place ads at the top of the video that was just uploaded. And then whatever is being played there, they pay percentage of that revenue back to the rights or, or very similar. It can be direct payment. It can be a lot of other things. We also provide separate services for the labels and rights orders in form of data and other parts of the system. How much data are you indexing right now? Well, so we have a couple of systems. The one that essentially index separately, the internet has over 20, I want to say 21 billion videos or so. I think to date is around four exabytes of data. So we are roughly four times the size of YouTube in amounts of data that we process. Four exabytes. I don't even know how big that is. Uh, 4,000 like... petabytes. <laughs> it's a lot of hard drive. It will be, a person will spend a lot of money if, if they wanted to retain that data. But that's also what is interesting about us. We obviously don't have that data, right? So the fingerprint is a very fractional size of the original content, orders of magnitude fractional. So for our whole database has only a few hundred terabytes and it's tiny in comparison to what we actually processed. Interesting. Uh, from a user's perspective, we don't need a, a whole class on, on copyright law. What is considered fair use? Uh, everybody on TikTok is using music, voiceover, things like that. And it seems to be okay. But if you put it on YouTube, then you get taken down. What are the general rules as it relates to fair use on UGC? No general use when it comes to UGC or anything else. Fair use in US is defined as kind of four areas that have to be considered, but ultimately the only entity that can decide fair use is a court. So there is no such a thing as like length. Uh, this is very common that people say, well, anything below 20 seconds, it doesn't work that way. In fact, one sentence out of a book can be considered copyright infringement. So we are talking about very fractional part. Fair use generally logically means that you are doing transformative work. So for instance, comedy, commentary, right, news, Something that essentially adds value. So for instance, what is also fair use, which is really interesting, if you take a whole movie, chop it every few scene, and you put commentary into that, that is a fair use, right? There's no length requirement. It's not about commercial, non-commercial. None of these matters. What matters is the transformative body of the work. When it comes to licenses and platforms, so for instance, TikTok is licensed by most of the music labels. The same goes to YouTube. But they are licensed for different things in different ways. So for instance, Snapchat is one of the only platforms that bought dialogues or licensed dialogues out of movies and TV shows. So you can take Michael Scott commenting on something from The Office, and you can use that on Snapchat, but you cannot use that on other places. So that means it is not allowed that same content can be moved to different platforms. And this is very specific to the deals that the platforms make. So YouTube and TikTok are fully licensed with most of the industry. If you take that content to, for instance, Reddit, it's not licensed with anyone or Twitter or Twitch. Actually, Twitch has some licenses for the life. And so then you are limited to the fact that from now on, you are limited to essentially to the platforms that, that they have the deals. And your platform is resolving all those rules in the back end. Correct. And we try to bring unified rules to everyone. So that means we don't believe in the in kind of the separation of the markets. We believe that there is a way to bring kind of unified interface and also unified experience to the internet. So you had started a few companies before PEX, several of which have failed. And even in the early days of PEX, you had spent three years trying to raise money unsuccessfully until you were able to kind of break through. What gave you the fortitude and conviction to press forward in those early stages of building PEX? A uh, combination of stubbornness and stupidity. We got very lucky, even when we couldn't find any significant venture capital. We had very valuable and very supportive early investors. And so some of them really saved my ass and the ass of the company where they funded when we were like to not be able to make a payroll, they will deposit $75,000 or something similar. And so we did have a couple of very, very 
strong supporters that helped us through the absolute worst. It still was not great, but the stubborn has definitely drew a huge part of this. Even in the failed companies, it's what kind of helped me or kind of anchored me in and I didn't allow me to really quit easily. And then the stupidity, or it's maybe even naivete in a sense, like I think every single founder says the same thing. If I knew what this will have cost it, time, resources, dedication, I will have not done it, right? I think everyone says the same thing. And I do have a very successful friend that always says the same thing. It's like for years, he was trying to talk me out of doing this company. And he said, nobody ever succeeded in this. This industry is just bad. Don't do it. Do something else. And now for the last couple of years, he says the opposite. It's like, I cannot believe you've done it. And you can't, I cannot believe you succeeded. And I, I still tell him the same thing. It's like, we haven't moved an inch. It's just your perception of us did. And so it's still the same. One of the things is like, I strongly believe that what makes sense will eventually happen. Um, there is the truth that is being said that the market can stay insane longer than you can stay solvent. And this doesn't apply just to money, but also your energy, right? Your sanity. And so somehow you have to figure out when to quit and when to not. And I feel like that's the biggest uh, skill that one can acquire to figure out when it's worth pushing and when it's not. So what was that inflection point that pushed you over? Well, I wouldn't say you know over the edge because in a startup, you're always fighting for continued survival and growth. Um, so it's never a done deal. But there was a moment in your history where you were at the last straw with the company with funding and a couple of unlucky breaks and then a couple of lucky breaks. And then you were able to get the second life and that led you up to further success. So what were some of those inflection points and what did you learn along the way? Yeah, unfortunately, we had three of these. But every single time, everything was very unlucky. There was one break that changed everything. And it was always something significant or enough that kind of reinforces my conviction. And one of the funny things that really happens to us, and we have this saying inside of the company, is like, if you're in doubt, talk to the customers. And it was always one of those things that really kept me going. And a lot of the people that have worked here kept going. That our technology, our capabilities are just so far ahead of everybody else that just to feel better about ourselves, we just go to the customer, showcase some of the capabilities, and they always react to it like a form of magic. And that somehow convinces you that it's worth fighting for it and it's worth going extra step. As I said, we had unbelievable support from single individuals from the beginning, where it was just always one or two people that showed up at any of these points and said, you know what, like, I believe in you, I, I trust you, and I know you will figure it out. And so I'm going to bet on you. And I have people that essentially helped with everything they had. And if we really failed, they lost it all, right? And so puts a lot of pressure, but also it's fantastic to see people that trust you so deeply with essentially what they can, right? And so that really helped. We had few lucky breaks and one of the biggest ones was when we couldn't really get any customer and so we went all in and i was just thinking about going back to google or something and it just worked it worked people saw it for what it was and they gave us a chance and from there it went really quickly and one of our investors always says is like the first check is the hardest and people do flock to you know like success breeds success essentially so when we were raising the last round we wanted to raise around 20 million and uh, the round really quickly ballooned to orders of magnitude essentially to what we were asking for. And then I spent longer negotiating it down than I was negotiating it up essentially. And so it truly is the first customer really defines what happens next, especially when it's significant. In our case, it was the largest customer we could have. I mean, there was, right? So it, it really defined who we were and it was a huge stamp of approval. But this really combination of the trust and relationship we had with the early investors and then combination of kind of perseverance and really seeing the reaction to what we built helped me personally going all of these times, right? But it is very exhausting to be at the brink of death every two years or so. It really puts a damp on the life somehow. But it's incredible to have people that have that amount of faith and support in, in you to invest in you. Absolutely. Even more, 
honestly, like more than any of the outside investors, it's the employees, right? The fact that we were out of payroll for maybe two months and nobody quit. They had personal issues because of that, and they still stayed. They still fought. They still believed in it, right? And I, I don't know if there is a better feeling in the world while you are failing everyone around you, but they still trust you and believe you. The validation of that is unbelievable. And it's very humbling because ultimately, I am in debt of all of the people that worked here over the years and the early investors, including for where we are and who we are. That's incredible. I want to come back to that when we talk about culture and leadership and the team that you've built around you. But let's drill into partnerships and deal making for a moment here. Talk to me about some of those early deals that you made. You talked about one that really kind of set the table for others to follow. It's always a challenge to get the first as a startup. It's a chicken and egg. One customer wants to see another, but how do you get the first one? Especially when you're dealing with enterprises or very large corporate entities, talking about record labels or technology companies and healthcare, this is always a major obstacle for startups, getting those first large enterprise contracts. What are some of the lessons that you've learned in making those deals, approaching them and landing those partnerships and contracts? Well, in our industry, it's absolutely most challenging because it's a triopoly. So there are three entities. They're kind of insulated from everybody else because everyone wants to talk to them. So it's in a sense, you know, like if you needed to sell to Fang and there was no one else, essentially, right? They don't really live kind of the Silicon Valley credo of like, if it's better, I take or I buy. They only deal with people they know. If you don't have 20 years in the industry, then they don't care essentially that you exist. And so I remember bombarding this person, like the same person for years at one of the labels and he never responded. And then when we made the deal with their competitor, he reached out to me maybe three days later and explained to me how badly they need to work with us. And I told him, was like, I tried to reach out to you guys. And he said, to whom? And I said, you, like literally you. And he will say, oh, I never heard of you. And so it is a process. It's a very painful process. Enterprises are very different from SMBs because they are way more about politics and appearances than they're about quality and reality. So I very quickly learned the fact that if you make the buyer look good in eyes of his bosses or her bosses, then you will win. And nothing else matters, right? So for instance, we had this fail attempt to break into analytical data, very similar to Nielsen or something similar, where we had a lot of information about how content spreads, right? So we started taking a look at movie studios that essentially movie studio has a two budgets. One side is production and one side is marketing. And they tend to be very similar size, right? So if they spend billion on production, they spend billion on marketing. It's kind of a very straightforward thing. So we showed up to the studios and showed them when they publish a trailer, we can show them progression of that trailer, who watched it, what else they watched, like a lot of this information. But where we really quickly ran into is that they were already buying essentially what was called the kind of the social data from third parties, which was based on text, right? So if you had a movie called Drive, then they will get every single keywords that match Drive from Twitter, right? Then they will package this into a presentation and show it to them. So they will say, you have 700 million mentions of Drive, right? So your movie is popping. That doesn't really mean it's your movie, right? Our technology is based on the content, right? So we know what is yours, what is not. So we'll show you, yeah, yeah, you had 6 million people actually mentioning it, and this is what happens. Well, now he, the manager has two presentations. One says 700 million, the other one says six, right? He's not going to go to his boss and say, remember how I showed you the 700 million presentation? Well, it's actually six, because he's fired. And we couldn't get anyone at any level of the company including literally the CEO, to agree to the fact that this is better. In fact, I met the CEO of uh, WPP a few years ago, and he told me that this will, they will only use us over his dead body because this will destroy them, because everyone else will show better numbers than us. It's not that they're precise, or they're just more. And so we really quickly realized that this is not about, can you do better? Can you prove better? Can you make more money? That was the other discovery that I couldn't believe it's true, 
we thought if we make you more money and explicitly can point to the dollar that you gave us here, we made three, but it's a no-brainer, right? People love making money. That's not how enterprises work, though. The employee's job is to preserve their own job, and they will do anything in their power to preserve their own job. And so they will do what they are incentivized to do, and that's usually to keep their job as safe as possible, right? And so if, if their boss says, essentially, I want to do X, they will do exactly that to a letter, even when that makes absolutely no sense. And so these are enterprises. So we found that essentially the strategy to use is you have to find a champion internally, work with that person, get them to rally up the people around them to support you, and then come from an other angle and introduce the whole offering from someone else where the champion essentially then supports it. So it's a whole kind of dance. It takes years. Our first contract took three and a half years to negotiate. And I thought we were company with no customers. And they were not saying she was other customers or anything else. They just took as long as they normally take. And so by the time we signed a contract, it had to go through so many people. The CFO had to sign off it because it was in millions of dollars. But by the time we essentially finished the contract, it was... I think the original was 95 pages and it was touched by 15 or so people, including the CFO of the company, right? And it took so long to negotiate that I couldn't believe that it will happen. And um, to this day, it's the, still the longest contract, but to this day, still, we, it takes us around a year or two to negotiate a new contract at this scale and this size. And so that's something that as a brand new startup is almost impossible, right? Who can survive yeah. without any money? And um we survived by absolute chances, coincidences, and support that I mentioned before. If there was not a few individuals that really gave us the time of the day, we would be not around. But it is it is very hard to break into enterprises day one. It's much easier to start with SMB. Our problem with this is when people now say creators economy, it's a big thing, right? When we started 2014, and even prior to that, when I started the previous attempts to this uh, 2010 and 2011, people laughed me in my face. So it was like, UGC is nonsense. Who is going to use that? Literally four years ago, one of the GPs at one of the most famous uh, venture companies told me the total addressable market of creators economy is so tiny that it doesn't make any sense for them. Only to come back two years ago and essentially beg me to give them a chance because this is the best market he ever seen, right? But the reality is the market was developing as we were building things. So timing is really everything. And we, we had a horrible timing. It somehow survived long enough to get actually the market to a place that it was favorable to us, but um, it was not a good place to start in. So what was larger, your hosting fees or your legal fees at that time? <laughs> uh, legal fees at one point. Uh, hosting fees at some point. I, I'm an engineer by trade. And... Um, when we build the systems in the original service, it was built around exploiting how the servers work, right? So for instance, every cloud company charges for egress, which is traffic out, instead of ingress, which is traffic in. Well, we download every single video on the internet, but then we don't send anything out. It's a tiny website that had essentially 50 users for which we were paid millions of dollars. So... You could run that on a calculator, right? The resulting website was so tiny that it just didn't matter. But the infrastructure that was necessary to do the pulling was unbelievably large. And at one point, we were literally the largest utilizer of Google Cloud while we were paying pennies. And so they always struggled with our existence. On one hand, the team was running around and using us in their promos saying, like, oh, look what is possible on this platform. On the other hand, the sales team was running around saying, like, guys, you have to pay us more. This is not normal. Like, we will be using twenty to 30,000 servers at any given point, but paying $2,000. Um, and then our legal fees. I didn't know anything about this industry when I started. It was absolute coincidence that I started in it. And so for years, we just had to even learn the basics. And it cost us a lot of money to do so because this industry is old have rules that don't make any sense today anymore, but they still apply in these like weird structures, weird ways. There are something called performance rights organizations like BMI and ASCAP in US. And uh, these are organizations that are over 100 years old, still use the same tactics that they used 100 years ago. When you look at this industry that is generating now, just this part around $20 billion annually, 
but you have people essentially with um, typewriter essentially still doing the same structure. Like you cannot believe how this is possible, right? And so we are trying to bring the whole industry to the little bit different world, but it's a process because as I said, every job of the mid-management person or kind of the IC, the independent contributor, their only job is to preserve their job. That's how enterprises just work, especially the ones that operate for over a hundred years. Uh, that is such a good point. And I, I want to reiterate that because I'm actually going through something similar with a client that sells to both startups and enterprises. And the strategy that I was recommending is precisely along these lines where with startups, you can sell value. With enterprise, you're selling risk reduction because nobody in a corporate bureaucracy ultimately cares that much about making more money for the company. It's all about Will I lose my job? Will I look good to my boss? So you need to understand the incentives that exist within the organization and with the person or persons, because usually it's a committee of sorts, right? Stakeholders, influencers in the decision-making process, understand what their thought process is and what their incentive structure is in order to be able to sell your product service or whatever. When I was talking to Sean and he was talking about startups getting acquired, and he made a really good point that for a startup to get acquired, somebody at the acquiring company needs to risk their career on you, right? Because an acquisition is a big deal. And if they made a, a bad bet, unless it's a company that's doing acquisitions all the time, most companies don't. So it, it's a huge bet and they're making a huge risk. And that's why you know most acquisitions don't happen. Uh, so yeah, so definitely understanding the incentives and looking at the risk from their eyes and pitching it such that you're not risking their job. This is my advice to even workers, right? If you want to get ahead, make your loss look good. Like ultimately, yeah. that's how you get ahead in enterprises. If you're in a startup, like you want to do as much job as possible, right? And it's always a trade-off. If you don't want to worry about paycheck and you don't want to worry about like what's happening, then enterprise is your environment. If you don't want to deal with politics and it's not about kissing someone asses, then it's startups. Well, I think us and our audience are the crazy ones who <laughs> give, give that up for the thrill of building something and changing the world ultimately. So that's, that's the, the sacrifice that we've made. Uh, were you selling yourself? Did you hire a sales team, enterprise sales? Like, How did you go about knocking on the doors of the triopoly that you mentioned? I strongly believe that if founder cannot sell the first few contracts, then you will never succeed. Because if you don't know what the customer is saying, then how will you know what to do, right? And so I not only knock on all of the doors, but I'm not from the industry and I refused to hire any, we'll call it them consultants, but this is not a good word in that sense, more like people with credibility, right? So along the way, we will run into stars. Industry insiders. Yes, but also people that are very well known. So I'm not going to name names, but people know these very well known artists, right? That essentially have no problem for 2% here or 5% there or whatever to knock on the doors with you, right? And they can open doors. I don't like that kind of approach because while they can open the doors, they cannot close for you. I don't mean the doors, I mean the deal. It's still you that has to close. And just because someone takes meeting with you doesn't mean they're going to do it for you. And then you are also taking on the relationship of that person. So if there is anything between these two people. Maybe he slept with his wife or something. You don't know what, what the relationship is like. You're taking on that relationship too. And so I found that cold calling, cold emailing, cold reach is actually more successful if it's very well done and targeted. So I tend to avoid going through third parties if I don't have to. And then once you are there, it's about really understanding the needs of the person that you're talking. The person that you're talking to doesn't care about the business. He doesn't care directly about making a million, a multi-billion dollar company. And so ultimately, you will not find a person at that company that cares about that million. There's not a single one. What you find is people that care about their positions and how to get ahead and all of that. And so where my original pitches, the very first ones were like, you put a dollar in here and three come out. My next pitch just showed up like, your boss will love you because this will happen, right? And this understanding you cannot get from a third party. It's not possible to hire a sales team that goes to these people and then go, 
well, I don't think we are doing a good pitch. We should not focus on the value. We should focus on them, right? Like if I honestly never go went through this and someone showed up with this kind of suggestion, I will fire them on spot. What an idiot will suggest that we should focus on the person that we are pitching to instead of the value of the company. Like that makes no sense. But unfortunately, that's the reality. And so I strongly believe that founders are responsible for getting the first deals done. And it really is very helpful to be able to do that because, for instance, to this day, I have very strong relationship across our customer base. And so if someone leaves or something happens, I know who to call. I know how to fix it. Right. And so we never really lost the customer for that reason, because even if we lose an employee that essentially had that relationship, I am able to take on that relationship. Or if something happens in the process, they know they can pick up call and call me. Like when you are a small startup selling to enterprise, then your home phone is the starting point, right? Like the fact that someone can call you on Saturday at three in the morning, that's the value that you can provide, the flexibility. And that's what they want, ultimately. The fact that CEO is kissing a butt of middle manager is very preferable at these enterprises because it's the closest they will ever come to a power. Got it. Even today, you're doing most of the sales yourself or at least accompanying the deal making? We do have a sales team. But I tend to at least work on the strategy generally. And then I tend to take on a lot of the significant discussions, significant calls, especially either when we do acquisitions, partnerships, or anything similar. I tend to be involved in that. Let's shift gears and talk about the regulations around copyright law. What are your thoughts on generative AI ChatGPT, the way that it works, it's taught, it's, it's trained on a corpus of whether it's imagery, art, text, and then it uses that to train the algorithm and then it, it can create by predicting. And oftentimes people have shown that it's basically recreating what it's been trained on. So where do you think the copyright law is going to land on generative AI? This is a very complicated topic. Um... Here is one parameter that is very important to keep in mind, which actually I think is very beneficial to the way that it's structured. In the United States, something generated by computer cannot be copyrighted. So that means if you produce a comic book, which is actually something that was just decided against a registration just uh, literally this week. Um, if you create a comic book and the whole comic book is written by AI, you cannot register that comic book. So when you think about Spider-Man, Spider-Man has been not around if it was purely generated by AI and it couldn't be copyrighted. I do think that it will help in around, but I don't think it will help in as franchised as it is, right? And so I do think that from this perspective, this is very beneficial because if you cannot make money beyond kind of the initial creation on the content that was created by AI, then it disincentivizes people from abusing it too much. So for instance... You say, I really like Jackson Pollock's style of paintings. There's a difference between I want to have a painting like that at home and I will print that from this generated content to saying I'm going to start printing these out and selling them in galleries. Like Those are two very different things. And so I think generative AI is very helpful and very valuable to the humanity, especially as a tool. So this was a huge discussion about electric pianos, electric guitars. When is the end? where the machine does more than the human, right? The kind of the sentiment is landing still on the fact that if a human is required for an input, that on its own has value, then the work is valuable, right? And so my guess, and there is a huge lawsuit between the company behind Stable Diffusion and Getty Images, I will be very surprised if they are going to win. And I will be also very surprised if Stable Diffusion got the win that they are hoping for. I do think that this is going to be very lose-lose kind of situation. On one hand, the courts will say, yeah, just because it was trained on your content doesn't mean they are going to pay you. But they will also say something along those lines. That said, every derivative will have to be paid from now on or something like that, right? It's like something in a way that is going to cripple both sides equally because the courts ultimately will go with what the general perception is. For those who don't know that Getty was able to prove that Stable Diffusion trained on their images because it was the AI was recreating with the watermark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was very clear that they trained it on Getty images. So that's going to get them in trouble. Did you see the clip recently of David Guetta, the DJ? Yep. He created a sample, told the AI to write lyrics in the style of Eminem, 
and then another AI to then vocalize those in the voice of Eminem with a deep fake. And it's incredible. Right? And that's today. It sounds like Eminem. There is going to be an interesting situation now. Eminem does have a disparagement laws that go for him that he could say, I never said that. And it's being right. perceived as I said that. Does it misrepresenting me? And he has some rights there. Mind you that he might do it just for the fact to identify who is right and who is wrong here, rather than having issues with that generation or generative content itself. The other part that is very challenging now is David Gitta used AI-produced content that it cannot be copyrighted. So the question becomes, does it invalidate the whole song? Does it invalidate that part? What the consequences of this are? And so this is going to play out eventually in courts. Maybe not this particular example, but some will. And yeah. then the courts will have to side with one of the sides, right? Or figure out what the rules are. And it is fascinating to get a voice of your loved ones that might not be with us anymore. Or having people that essentially this was in the Top Gun, right? I mean, there are fantastic benefits to all of this. And there are bad consequences. Like someone was just showing a few days ago how they were able to get into their bank account because it's all voice recognized, right? Like when Photoshop showed up, it was said that there will be no truth anymore, right? No images will ever be real. And that didn't happen. Like while we, we get fooled from time to time by image, the society adjusted. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a fascinating topic and a rabbit hole that I'll try to avoid for the sake of time. Let's talk about culture and leadership. From what I've seen and gathered online for my research, you have a very unique style of leadership and culture that you've built at PEX. I think you've described it as more of kind of a European style company of robust benefits, complete salary transparency, and other things like that. So I guess a couple of questions there. How much of your background and how detailed do we want to get into your story, but how much of that led you to build your company this way? And do you think that it's something this style is unique to PEX or is something that could be modeled at other tech startups? My experiences clearly had some impact and who I am definitely had some impact. I'm not going to take much credit for this. I will put most of the stock with my partner and COO, Amadea, who was responsible for a lot of these decisions. And I think my biggest strength in the process was that I just delegate and trust. I had companies before. I never, ever even thought about any kind of transparency. I always thought salary transparency is net negative to the company because it allows people to be disenchanted with the, what they find, right? But over time, I started realizing essentially there are groups in the society that benefit strongly from that. And it is all about what you optimize for. So for instance, our strong benefits, like one of the highest healthcare is we contribute most of the family, right? We have 401k that is not dependent on your salary, but rather on the limit of the law. And so stuff like that attract more senior people. So people that essentially are, you know, when you're in your 20s, healthcare is the last thing you care about. You are not super sick most of the time. And so having best healthcare that costs tens of thousands of dollars a year, would you rather take cash or would you take that healthcare? Of course you will take cash. And so young people have certain preferences and more senior people have other preferences. So for instance, every startup is about work all the time, preferably never stop. That's not what senior people want. They have families, they have other responsibilities, they have hobbies. They build a life for themselves. And so where a young person has literally nothing else in life, they want to hang out with each other. And so we really optimized for what we wanted to attract. We wanted more senior people. We cannot compete on salaries with some of the fan companies where they pay. I mean, Netflix starts at the levels where we don't even end, right? Like meaning they're so ahead of us financially in that sense, that we couldn't afford a single person, right? But then when you find out, it's like people will take other things in the form of a payment or in the lieu of payment. And so we have 40-hour work week, meaning we don't ask people to work past that. We don't ask them to work on weekends, holidays. We understand that there is a, every once in a while, there is a situation like once a year where you have to be forced to work in times that you shouldn't. But that's kind of the absolute exception that we ask for. We give a lot of free time. 30 days of PTO rather than unlimited. So people actually take it. 
we give a free day on their birthday. So rather than pretending that the cake in the office is like more valuable, we just give people day off and do whatever. And then when we started doing the transparent salaries, it was really as a result of the fact that I was just too tired negotiating with everyone. It, it's like you will spend two weeks going through so many people to even figure out if this person is fit. And then you get to the end and that person says, is like, you lost your mind. Like, I'm not working for this. What's the benefit of that? So we now essentially disclose everything up front. We tell people, it's like, look, this is what we will pay on this position. You like it, you like it. You don't, you don't. Like, we, nobody's forcing you to work here. We now have 93% success rate in closing candidates because everything is up front known. So you don't show up to us and say, oh, I expected $400,000, but this is two hundred, dollars or something crazy like that. It's just 93% offer acceptance rate. Offer acceptance rates. We have very, very occasionally it happens that someone negotiates this very particular group of people that negotiates. It's a very small group of people. But for instance, the other thing that we really quickly realize, if you want to have a diverse group of people, then you have to target them. And so where one group strongly benefits, the other might not. And so what we found out is for uh, women or people of color or immigrants, um, in the US, the transparency works better for them. They don't want to negotiate. They don't many times don't know how to negotiate. They sometimes negotiate against themselves. They like the fact that they just get paid the same. And that makes it much easier for us to hire hire diverse teams. So for instance, on our executive team, we have more women than we have men. The whole executive team, essentially every single person is a foreigner, although they are American now citizens. So we right. incentivize certain type of people to come, and then we build everything around it. We essentially the same as every company goes, who is your perfect customer? We said that about an employee. Who is our perfect employee, and how do you attract them? And so we approach it the exact same way as we approach business. We create a profile of a person, and then we try to figure out how to get that person to work for us. I love that. And I must say, so far, that worked for us really well. We have unbelievable longevity at the company. At this point, I think we have three point six year and average tenure. People just don't leave. That's the other thing. Like we don't hire too many people because we don't lose too many people. And we always had issues with like recruiting agencies where they're like, I will send you 150 candidates a day. What am I going to do with those when I hire one percent <laughs> a month? By not having attrition means I don't have to invest as much into these processes. So I took that money I invested back to the people. So we have education fund where you can pay for books and other stuff. Like we want you to be better, not related to the company, just to you. Because if you stay longer for us, we benefit from that more. And that was our approach. Everything is as calculated as everyone else. It's not that we are family. We don't treat people any better than anyone else in this sense. We just explicitly optimize for what we want. And what we want is longevity. And so we like when people stay four, five, six years because we get more out of them without investing as much money into the transition. So when you lose a person with four years of experiences, it's very hard to recover from that. And that's what you're losing when you lose people to attrition of any kind. And so we optimize for longevity and that's all we care about. And this might not be for everyone. Uh, when I was at Google, they optimized very heavily in getting as many fresh bodies into the door. And so they will hire 6,000 people a year and lose 3,000. It was preferred way for them because they liked the kind of the new blood and the new energy and new ideas. And that was the way. And there is nothing wrong with it. But for us, longevity is the goal. And that's what we optimize for. Makes sense. You started the company as a remote company and then made everyone come into the office. And then I'm assuming with COVID, you're remote again. Walk me through that. What have you learned about what works and what doesn't work in building a remote culture? I hate remote for many reasons, but I also love remote for many other reasons. And so when I started this company, I was 26, I think, 2014. Yeah, It was very hard to have four employees or five employees in the company and then be scattered all over the world. It's very hard to synchronize. It's very hard to get just a human touch together. Like just really understanding and having empathy with each other and these small things. And so I spent literally three years convincing everyone to come. And this is not small feat because people were outside of US. Some of them were outside of US and it took a lot of work to get them in. And so every single person moved. And then he started growing, growing, growing. And then 
COVID happened. And after two weeks, when you might remember these times when people said, we'll see each other in two or three weeks. It was obvious to me, day one, my wife worked, still works for TikTok. And so we, I saw through her eyes how China started shutting down way before everybody else. And I saw it was coming down. And so there was no way that we were coming back in two weeks or anything like that. And so two weeks in, we actually went the opposite direction and asked everyone, here are two options. Either we wait this out, it might take a few months, and then we come back, or we turn into remote, and these are the consequences. And uh, people voted. They wanted to go remote, and that's what we did. And so remote culture is a culture of repetition. I saw once a study, it was about marketing, that showed that you need to be exposed 1.2 times to something in person in order to have a relationship with it. So like if two people stop you on the street and one says orange and the other one says orange after that, then orange it is. It takes up to six times to get the same from online. And um, same goes to most likely information. You have to repeat certain things six times in order for it to land once. And so we have this very extensive documentation of everything. Everybody writes thousands of pages of stuff. And then two years later, you will have an employee that still doesn't know what the core of the business is while you've repeated it every single week. So you focus on very different things and you hire for different things. You hire people much more mature and also better at self-management. So for instance, what this penalizes is uh, people at the beginning of their careers. They need some mentorship. They need to get habits. They don't have these things. Schools don't develop those at all. And so... It's much harder to hire people out of school, honestly, for remote companies. People talk about the benefits of salaries and all. We pay kind of the same across the whole world. We have maybe a little bit different compensation in different places, but we generally are very close. And then with the cost of everything else, you come usually at the same or worse. And so I personally, if I can, I would much rather prefer four-day work week, but in office on five day and remote. That will be my personal preference. But at the same time, you know, the company is not me. The company is me plus 100 people. And so the 100 people have way more say into this than I. And so we are where we are by the choice of theirs. It's a selfless way of leading. Anything else you want to tell me about your leadership style? What you've learned about leadership along the way? My manager also wrote a leadership style is pretty terrible, which always shows up in the fact that the people that thrive with me are the people that essentially manage themselves better than anyone else can. Um, people that do want to be managed, they tend to suffer a lot under me. We are now much bigger. We have very professionalized team. So this is not a big issue, but it used to be in the past. Um, I think one thing that I learned specifically in the prior companies, and I applied to this, I try to treat everyone as an adult. So when there is a problem, I say it. I don't hide things. It used to be if we had any kind of issues, I try to protect people, quote unquote, from it. And you find out very quickly that's just not good. People actually do a better job when they know and it's bad than what they don't and they find out. Like it's just not good, essentially. And so I really try to be as honest as possible. And this kind of led to more and more sharing of this information and sharing our revenues and everything else. And then it just became, you know, how much money is in the bank, you know, how much is coming, you know, everything. And so if I make a decision, you are free to question it, but you also have most of the information that I do. Um, I honestly really focus on incentivizing people to do what I want, right? So rather than telling people what I like or them trying to guess how to please me, I really try to build frameworks around. And I try to play with things like, I have some beliefs now that I don't know how to implement properly yet, but kind of one of those is I do believe that essentially promotion should be automatic. Essentially, you should be promoted every year until you can't be promoted anymore, meaning either you don't do your job well anymore or there's nowhere else to go. That's kind of the job, essentially. It's like you are needed for this period of time to do this job, right? So to help the company to get to a place, but you are not essentially in the sense that you cannot be let go or anything like that, right? And so I don't know how to implement this, honestly. And it's something that I keep thinking about. It's like not having a promotion cycle. It's like normal companies, it's like someone gets promoted, someone doesn't. But rather, you get promoted until you are not at the end, whatever that end is, right? That will be my preferred way of this. Again, I don't know how to do that. Um, 
That's the Peter principle, right? You get everybody reaches their level of incompetence, right? And, and there is something to be said about having people at the same position for periods of time. But what happens is they build either resentment or they just get stale, right? It's better to replace them with someone over time. I'm not talking about days or weeks. I'm talking about years to decades, right? If you have a person on the same position for 10 years, something is wrong, honestly. Because it means that the person is not moving anywhere and you are not moving them anywhere. And so they kind of stale and that job is very likely not done well. Not because they're bad, it's just because that this is the situation now, right? So that kind of yeah. something I keep thinking about. There's a lot of these small tidbits that I learned over time. But the biggest challenge tends to be like we have that now still. Whenever someone joins us, we are just so different from everybody else. It takes them time to adjust to who we are. And so I tend to gravitate to make the least amount of changes to achieve the most of the goals. Like one of those is, this was a huge issue always at certain companies, but one of my friends who is a very successful operator, he essentially said, be careful about the beginning of the startups, giving big titles to people, because over time you will need to hire people at those levels or higher. And so you have this guy that you hired employee number four, and he's now the SVP of something, right? Now, you actually need to hire a professional SVP that actually knows what they're doing, and that, or not even SVP, you need to hire a VP of that. And then they join the company to look at this person that it doesn't know anything, right? They were just a, one of the very first employees there, so that kind of how this plays. And now you end up with a person that is essentially resentful because their position is lower than the others, at least the title. Even if they're making more money, their title is lower than the other, but the person is just nowhere near, right? And it happens all the it time. It happens all the time. And so I pay a lot of attention to that. In fact, I might have gone the other way, like we held the titles for years. So we had no VPs or SVPs whatsoever because I was so petrified to give it to anyone. And I really quickly got the sense that you have to do what is closer to you. So. If you hate firing people, then just don't hire as many or as quickly, right? Like, take time. There's nothing wrong with keeping people, nor there's nothing wrong with letting go people. Just it should be done way that it's more you and something that fits your strategy or your kind of character. And so I know that if I started the other company, it will have been nothing like Pexis right now. Because Pexis is really not a, my company or about me, but it's about the people that are there. So... Even now, we will sit down at least once a year as a company and we will talk about what matters to us. So for instance, do you guys want a better healthcare benefits or do you want better something? It's like ultimately, we want people to choose for themselves. So when, for instance, COVID started and everybody started freaking out, we started getting questions from the company. Why not to cut salaries across the board just to be sure, just to be safe. And it was really interesting that when you people do treat as a Grown-ups, they actually behave as a grown-up. And so it was fascinating to watch, honestly. Rasti, you're describing this like so matter-of-factly, but it is so unique in how other companies are led and the egalitarian approach that you're taking is unique and fascinating. So we can keep going. <laughs> We've taken, a, taken enough of your time here, and I really appreciate it. Let's uh, go into the lightning round. I'll ask you a couple of quick questions just Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Sound good? Good. All right. What's a productivity hack that you swear by? I run in sprints. So like I try to work rather an hour a day than 12. And essentially just focus really quickly on something that needs to be done. You don't have time in that to be burned out in a sense, right? It's not like I have good task or bad task. I have fast task, right? So it's like something that needs to be done now. And then that's kind of what I do. I also believe strongly there is no such a thing as a to-do list. It's just the top of the to-do list, the one thing. And then when you're done with that one thing, it's not that the next thing is the next thing. It's the new reshuffle of that list. Something else becomes very important. So I don't bother with lists or kanbans or any of that. It's like I do things as they are necessary, essentially. What uh, book, podcast, or newsletter are you finding yourself recommending most often? I don't read newsletters. I don't listen much to podcasts, but uh, books I've listened uh, every too many of them. And um, I love biographies. It feels like you are meeting people, the most interesting people in the world. You're making them friends. I recommend Benjamin Franklin's biography. The one that I like as a business book, which is very not 
common, I think. It's uh, Making of Trader Joe's by Joe Colombo. It's one of the best business books I ever read, which is not a business book at all. I also read a lot of sports books about the score takes care of itself or stuff like that. I strongly believe that businesses are sports team. I'm way more into sports applied to business than war applies to business. Like I don't think that the rules are the same in the war as they are in a business. Because war is way more about it doesn't matter how you win until you win. This company is heavily uh, influenced by laws. And I like knowing the laws and I like knowing what the liabilities are. So I can make educated decisions, right? So I don't mind breaking laws if I know what I'm doing, if what the laws and the consequences are. And uh, the other ones are um, like almost any parenting books. They break down to a very simple terms how to talk to other human beings, essentially how to talk to teenagers, because that applies so much to management. It's like, how do you get a grown up to essentially do something they don't want to do? Is one of the exact things. How do you get teenagers to do what they don't want to do, right? And so I find those books to be one of the best management books that are out there. You said you don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but I know you do run. So I will recommend the Founders podcast, but David reads uh, the biographies of famous entrepreneurs and founders uh, from history and talks about the books and talks about their life story. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. And of course, you got to listen to the Product Market Fit podcast. <laughs> what makes for a great board member? It's someone who is more a coach than it's business person or anything else. So the best board members from my experience are the ones that are not there to judge in a sense, right? I mean, technically, what board in the United States is, it's oversight, right? So technically, they are responsible for the companies well-being more than they're responsible to the CEO. But in a startup setting where board is way more about helping out the CEO at that point, it's someone who can help you or who is kind of the ear, right? So most companies are founded by multiple co-founders and there is always tension like marriages, right? When marriages help marriage counselors, there needs to be someone that kind of steps in and good board members tend to do that. Sit down with the people, help them to understand, help them to see things through um, maybe the other person's lens, at least at the early of the companies. In the later co stages companies, you do want someone who has very extensive experiences, preferably, in my opinion, preferably someone who is two, three steps ahead of you. So, so you know, if you're a Series A company, someone CD, so they can help you to understand the path that you are taking. It's the same as when you're a parent of two-year-old talking to parents of five, six-year-olds, right? Not the parents that have children that are 40, right? Because that doesn't help you really much. But the person that is like slightly ahead of you can be very supportive and successful for you. Is uh, Leo on your board? Leo Palvet? Yes. Leo is one of the most fantastic people, friends, and board members for us. He actually manifests this one of the best, honestly. I've been following him for a while on Twitter. Brilliant guy. And you know him from Google or you just happened to be? Uh, we, uh, we overlapped heavily at Google, but somehow we never really interacted. But we became uh, fast friends. And that's kind of how our relationship is. Even prior, we knew each other years before they invested in the company. And he's one of the best board members when it comes to early stage startup. It's exactly what I think a good board member really looks like. All my board members, I'm very lucky uh, with Sydney Patnos and Brian Chu. They're all fantastic. They really, really add a lot of values in every in very different ways. And that's one of the other things that I'm very happy about. We have a fairly diverse group of board members. For instance, Cindy was a founder twice before herself. And so she understands a lot of these things from the first-hand experience. And she focuses mostly on B2B, B2E companies. Leo is engineer by trade and by education, and he was employee number two at LinkedIn, and he has a lot of experiences with fast-growing companies. And then Brian is coming from the financial world, ex-Goldman Sachs, and a lot of knowledge around how to structure business and how to run the financial side of the. And so I'm very lucky that we got a very diverse board group. And so any issues or any any problems that we've run into are automatically taken by one of them rather than, you know, having too many of the same. Amazing. Rasti, I so enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I learned a lot and appreciate you sharing your experience, your wisdom, 
Uh, any final thoughts and how can people get in touch with you? I use literally nothing else but Twitter. Um, my DMs are open so that people can write me. I'm really thankful that you had me and hopefully this is helpful to someone. Thanks, Rusty. Let's stay in touch. Wishing you all the best. Thank you very much. Have a good one. That's a wrap. What did you think of that interview? Did you learn anything that you could apply to your startup? I always love to hear your feedback. So hit me up via email at hello at pmfpod.com or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. We also have many more founder interviews coming up, including Omer Artun and Adam Nash. So make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you get notified when we release new episodes. And if you're enjoying this show, I'd really appreciate a positive review in Apple Podcasts. Finally, don't forget to check out growth.co, that's growth without the O.co, if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.